Hi everybody and welcome. It's Toby Miller here. This is the Cultural Studies Podcast and I'm in the Me Hotel on the Strand in London with a new friend who will now correct my pronunciation of her names. <laughs> Lily Chuliaraki? Kuliaraki. Kuliaraki. My apologies. Thank you for the correction. <laughs> no and, well, what do you think of this bar we're in? Um, futuristic. Not, futuristic. Um, it's like a cage or a prison with these bars, isn't it? But it doesn't feel imprisoning. Uh, not at all. On the contrary, I would say. It has these curves that make it feel quite hospitable. Yeah, like, I guess curves don't feel like prisons, do they? Even though prison turrets might be curved. No, I think prisons are, in my imagination, square. Hmm. Yeah. And it's the square that gives you that feeling of entrapment, I think, more than this. And also there are openings here, as well. Yeah. openings between the bars. Yeah. And um, across. So, no, I think it's, um, it's a vision of um, some kind of future. Well, we were just talk, chatting off mic about what makes one feel subjectified and subjugated and identified in ways that militate against some other notion of freedom. Maybe it's a bourgeois individualist one. I don't know. But in any event, tell me what's fascinating you at the moment. What's fascinating me? Well, actually, I have a continuing fascination that gets renewed uh, every now and then uh, by new things that happen in the world. Uh-huh, yeah. My continuing fascination is um, paradoxically with a question of um, human suffering mm. and how you communicate human suffering. So it's really about the suffering body as, as, a, as a problem of communication. <laughs> um, and, you know, across the years I have been interested in different ways in which the body appears. <laughs> as a cause for action, as um, an entity in need. Um, in the past, through disaster news, for instance, later on in humanitarian <coughs> appeals, in um, uh, celebrity talk, in concerts, in news again, online news. Um, today, I'm fascinated about bodies in need in conflict zones and particularly the ways in which they are represented in amateur videos. Videos of actors, you know, people who are there. <coughs> oh, excuse me, feel. sorry about this thing, thank you. Here you go. That's what I need, a little more water. I think you do, tea. yes, absolutely. <coughs> oh, pardon me, thank you. It does happen. She's just reached out to a body in need. A body in need, She's also a voice in need, I have tears streaming down my face. And a voice can barely speak, so it's just as well you're opening <laughs> up your interview. Exactly, and I have just, um, I, I've just manifested a bit of empathy here. Mm. Yes, very good empathy, thank you. Um, so, yes, so that is my continuing fascination. As right. I said, now it is the body need um, in amateur videos of conflict zones. So, could you define the body for us? The body or the body need? Both. What is a body? Well, what is a body? Um, I approach it from a semiotic point of view. Um, a body, from the point of view of meaning making, is that configuration of signifiers that in one or another way communicates 
something about humanity, something mm -hmm. about the fact that we are human. Um, it is, however, an open question. You cannot really uh, define the body always in terms of a particular bounded uh, materiality or in terms of particularly embodied and embodied expression of emotions. I would say that part of what fascinates me uh, in terms of studying the communication of the body in it is precisely that openness mm -hmm. of meaning around how those different signs can be configured together mm. and produce particular versions or articulations of what the body and particularly the body in need is. Now, to go from the body to in need, mm. I have a very simple definition of what in need means, um, which again doesn't tie the body into a very specific appeal to a particular emotion, mm. despair or pain or, or whatever, but it does again render it a signifier of a cause for action, whatever that is, mm. Mm -hmm. whatever that is. Um, it could be to protest, again, what is happening to this body. It might be to um, save the life of that suffering body. It might be to offer clothing or food or whatever. But um, whatever that, uh, that action is, for me, the need of the body uh, condenses and articulates again um, that totality of causes mm. that may eventually lead to some form of action. Well, we had a little break there, folks, as you may have heard, while I was trying to tend to whatever it is is making my throat <laughs> scream, as it were. We were talking about the body in need, and I wondered if I could just go back to the body you mentioned semiotics, the body as metaphor and metonymy, because bodies aren't always either human or in fact alive. Bodies are also, you know, Cyprus, New South Wales, the Football Association of Portugal, and so on. Why do you think the body has such motility and mobility as a signifier? As a metaphor. Way? That's a very interesting question. In fact, if I can um, dare criticize my own work for a second, I would say that one of the limitations of it is that I have confined my definition of the body uh, in the domain of the human. And the human is itself, of course, a huge terrain of uncertainty. I mean, what it means to be a human and how yeah humanity emerges out of multiple significations is, is one of the key issues of, of, of my agenda anyway. And perhaps that is the reason why I have confined myself to, to the human body alone. But, but the limitation of that, of course, is that I have left unexplored precisely that um, terrain of questions that come with um, recontextualizing, if you like, the body beyond uh, beyond um, um, uh, a definition around the human and around humanity. Um, I think talking about talking about politics, for instance, mm. or community in terms of the body, um, 
and exploring what the implications of that, the metaphorical implications, the discursive implications of that are for the ways in which we understand ourselves as part of that political mm. body or that body of a, of, a, of a community, body of bounded people, is an extremely interesting um, uh, interesting question. Um, and I suppose it has already been explored in terms of um, the biologist connotations of it. So belonging uh, to a particular body politic uh, almost um, implies that you are uh, connected to it by blood. You are connected to it through natural bonds, that it is not a choice, that it is somehow something that is dictated uh, by nature. So it is, if you like, part of a, of a discourse, a conservative or nationalist discourse that tries to, um, in one or another way, preclude possibilities of choice around questions of, of, of belonging. So the health On of the, the body politic is, for example, taken at a moment when the body of the head of state is problematized. It's ill, it falls sick, it dies. And there's a crisis then of the way in which there can be a movement onto a new head of state. And we see this with the economy, the way the economy is anthropomorphized in a reverse way as a body. The economy is sick, the economy is well. No one talked this way before the Depression. It's only in the 1930s this discourse of the economy as a body. I think there is something began. about the body that mm. um, connotes inevitability. That somehow mm. things that happen within the body and around the body are natural processes. They are processes we can pathologize and we can try mm. to cure mm. um, and sometimes uh, point to internal causal relations. Um, but it is ultimately something uh, that needs to be um, inevitably managed in particular ways. So there is no openness. Again, I would say mm. that metaphors uh, that use the body as uh, the boundaries of particular entities that have nothing to do with biological bodies, for instance, the economy or the state, again operate as prohibitive of other choices, other alternatives, other possibilities of imagining how particular collectivities could grow together or how particular processes like the economy could be managed. Mm. You mentioned being critical of your earlier work. I wondered if you could take us back, 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 as they say in baseball commentary, and tell us how you got interested in the body and where it all began for you as an intellectual. Um, I mean, the question of the suffering body started interesting me um, around the beginning of the of the century, around the beginning of the twenty first century, when, especially um, after September the eleventh, I remember. Yes, mm. September eleventh, two thousand and one. I remember those unforgettable, even though um, eventually prohibited images, forbidden images of people falling uh, from from the towers, um, and the subsequent shock and horror around those events. That, of course, as we all know now, had profound and long-term implications, both political, diplomatic, military. Mm. Um, 
etc., etc. Um, and the question that started going through my mind at that time was, why do some bodies matter more than others? Mm. Why are some bodies valued more than others? Why is the death of some people um, treated as an object that needs to be protected, that needs to be dignified and redignified in its moment of death, and others do not? Well, Why? there was a great controversy later on about the actuarial tables used to decide compensation for lives lost, wasn't there, in that case? A huge controversy. Because the payouts were determined in part by how much your putative future income was lost would be worth to your descendants. Well, yeah, and that's precisely uh, my, um, my point that, um, and it is in a way a cliche point in the sense that it's been made many times before that some bodies are valued more than others, that of course American lives or lives that are lost in the United States um, by highly paid professionals um, should be uh, dignified and mourned more than lives lost in other um, parts of the earth, uh, other continents, mm. or mm. even within that country in other geographical regions or neighborhoods. Again, perhaps the, the metaphor of the body would help us here problematize um, um, what that stratified geography might, um, uh, might imply. Um, but for me, the question then became, so how do the media, how do processes of communication contribute to that hierarchization of human life? Um, and sometimes that has to do with precisely not showing mm. the body in need or the body suffering or the body, the dying body on the screen or on paper, as for instance in the September 11th victims. Um, other times it is about showing too much, as for instance in the suffering of um, Africans in humanitarian campaigns. Compassion fatigue. Uh, what has now supposed to have led in compassion fatigue, mm. such as the emaciated bodies, the children with flies in their eyes, powerless, agentless bodies that are just lying there unaware of the camera, waiting to be helped. Um, so there are different ways in which bodies are valorizing processes of communication. And for me, the key thing was, in that earlier work, to show, um, to show the politics of representation that precisely produce and, um, and legitimize those hierarchies. To my surprise, as I started writing my first book on the topic, The Spectatorship of Suffering, um, and, and whilst I was thinking that this was a topic that many people must have written about, because to me it was so self-evident, and indeed it is as we, as we now talk, um, I realized that very little was in fact written on, 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 the, on, the, on the issue. Very little was uh, written to problematize um, precisely how the media participate in creating those hierarchies of human life, geographical place to begin with, of place and human life at the same time. And so that was the beginning of my interest in that, in that agenda. So September 11, 2001, where were you? I mean, now you're a professor at the London School of Economics and Political Science, not far from where we're meeting. Is that what you were doing on that day? 
Um, well, what was I doing on that day? Um, first of all, I, I, I used to live in Copenhagen then, and I was, um, I was uh, an associate professor at the time at, at the department of uh, then film and media at the University of Copenhagen. And my agenda was already on the body need. Um, I, um, I had uh, already turned my interest from um, methodological questions of uh, discourse theory, discourse analysis and social theory to uh, exploring how the media represent well, the body quality, in fact, in relation to the dying body. Um, and I was already working on um, the uh, emergence of nationalist feeling uh, in, in Greek television in relation to a death in um, um, a killing in, um, in, in the borders between uh, uh, northern Cyprus and, and Cyprus, uh, the Greek Cypriot side. Um, so when the event happened, I was in Copenhagen and um, I thought, well, here we are. Another valuation of body outside, uh, perhaps, um, the strongly nationalist frame that I was so much criticizing in the Greek media, but yet something that raises interesting question about what I said earlier as the differential distribution of, 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 um, of, um, of value in human life. And that's how it kind of all developed. Could you tell us a little bit about your critique of the Greek media and its coverage of this killing? Um, that was a killing of a, a Greek Cypriot activist who at the time had climbed up the flag post of um, the Turkish flag uh, on the borders between the, these two sides of Cyprus and was um, killed by the Turkish side, by, by guards, soldier guards on the Turkish side. And that had provoked huge furore in the Greek media as something that um, signaled the um, attitude of the Turks against the Greeks. Uh, they were um, aggressive, uh, they were um, brutal, they were cruel. They didn't respect uh, international um, uh, international uh, law, etc., etc. And even though there was some truth in that, uh, and even though that death was indeed tragic, I found it um, problematic um, that a death like that was blown out of proportion. Uh, was placed into a mythical understanding of Greece and its martyrical past. Um, was devoid of any historicity of the particular political and diplomatic relations that had led to to, to that crisis, and which eventually ended up in in, in splitting the you know the political terrain between us and them. Uh, in a way that really contributed nothing to international cooperation or indeed bilateral cooperation, which was so badly needed at the time, and indeed confirmed the, um, the superiority of, of, um, of our national identity over theirs. And so death was used as a, a vehicle for sublimating national identity, for heroizing that individual and treating the Greek Cypriot national identity as something that belonged to a mystical domain, something untouchable and outside the domains of critique.
presumably there's an, a link here somewhere, and forgive my ignorance, to the Greek tragedy, as it were, not in terms of Greek drama, but the Greek tragedy of being famous for things that happened thousands of years ago that keep being reincarnated <laughs> in the hope that they might be true today. But Greece is the cradle of this, the origin of that, but it's never anything in the here and now. Well, if it is anything in the here and now, it is actually a problem. Well, it's con in the contemporary moment, it's a disaster. It's a disaster, but indeed. It's, there is this tragedy of Greece that it is always something that was, it seems to me. Yes, precisely. And um, I, I don't know if this is, if you like, the tragic fate of um, all big nations that manage to have such a, a glorious past that will never eventually um, be able to be repeated or lived up to in any way. Mm. Or whether it is indeed a very particular problem that we Greeks have in terms of being perhaps so far at least unable to create a present worthy of mm. um, a people. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it we is, are not. it's just fascinating. There's this guy, I've never met him, but about 25 years ago he wrote a book, his name is Gregory Eustanis, I think, mm -hmm. about the tragedy of Greek political theory, that it can never be anything about anything after Christ, basically. There's, you know, the, and so the myths are constantly called upon from another epoch. No, I think that is absolutely right. I think the most recent, perhaps, um, celebrated Greek theorists were actually, uh, well, much later, it was in the 70s, it was the French structuralist left-wing yeah. school of Lanzas and then Castoriadis, even yeah. though, of course, there are differences yeah. between them again. But I think what it's telling is that for those Greeks to actually um, produce and, mm. and, um, and, 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 and think in a, in a creative way, they had to leave the country. I think that is very telling. Very telling. Well, and Poulancis and Castoriadis were very influential on people like me, without a doubt. Yeah, and absolutely, me lots too. Lots of others. Even people like Manuel Castells, now on the right, dedicated his communication and power book to Poulancis, even though he's a forbidding anti-Marxist who sloughed off the serpent-like skin of <clears throat> the great truth of historical materialism. Anyway, enough of but that. But still, yeah, no, well, of course, no, I, I don't want to kind of go on and on about this, but I think what he did and what they both did mm. was that they belonged to that kind of, that brave generation that tried to keep the core of Marxist ideas that mm. I still believe are very mm. important and absolutely mm. crucial in critical thought today, mm. but somehow give it a new impetus. Yeah, no, for in sure. In the face of, you know, of, sure. of, the, of the impasses that, that, um, that the, um, um, you know, the uh, communist regimes were presenting us with at the time and ever yeah. since, of course. So they were, I think, even though their thought is not as perhaps um, as, as productive and as uh, inspirational today, they, they did have a moment where they were absolutely yeah. at the for forefront of what progressive thought was yeah. then, and that, that had the value of its own. So Nikos Poulancis we're talking about, who was a professor of politics in France, and there's a famous debate, Poulancis Miliband, right? Between him and Ralph Miliband, who taught nearby at the LSE. Yes. He actually talked with my father at the LSE. Oh, really? Yeah. Like a man. And this is a debate between structuralist Marxism and a kind of British empiricism. Uh, very interesting debate. And 
Philantus tragically died, I guess, 30-odd years ago. Cornelius Corne yeah. Castoriadis, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, yeah, more yeah, or less, yeah. I guess he kept going till maybe 15 years ago he passed away, and he's I doing a more so, psychoanalytic Marxism. Yes, exactly. So he was, exactly. So he was there in the post-state socialist absolutely, period, yes. which Polanzas so, was yes. not. So we shouldn't really conflate the two, because in fact, yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think one of the key contributions of Castoriadis um, theory to, to, to post-Marxist thought is, is the idea of the imaginary, which is mm. again a kind of psychoanalytical yeah, rework, well, rather reworking of a psychoanalytical concept of, of the imaginary, which he, however, kind of uh, infused with um, the idea that it's always historically and institutionally specific and it is something that can change through people's actions rather than as something yeah. that is just imposed on us. So, yeah, so, I mean, both in very different ways, as I said, contributed to the reinvigoration of, of um, uh, Marxist thought. And I didn't wish for a moment to say there's nothing of interest emanating from Greece since ancient times, in inverted commas. Obviously, there's wonderful music, there's fantastic cinema, theatre, literature, you name it. What I meant was that the invocation of Greece internally and internationally is so antiquated in a certain sense, you know what I mean? Well, it is, and I think this partly has to do, as I've already said, with Greece's own inability, and I think this is a historical, systemic, and cultural, um, and political inability to produce something new today, and there is a, a, a complex set of reasons for that, that many um, uh, theorists, Greeks, living of uh, have uh, have explored, uh, but I think it is also a problem of a kind of um, uh, in international discourse on Greece that mm. somehow sustains um, a kind of schizophrenic duality about the country, mm -hmm. in the sense that on the one hand, Greece is always construed as that. Um, the predecessor of contemporary Western civilization. It is, it is um, the mother of, of Europe. It mm. is um, the place where all the ideas of the Enlightenment were actually born mm. and, and eventually taken up and, and renewed um, uh, 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 later on in modernity. Um, and on the other hand, it is that backwards place mm. that inherited all the um, conservative, patriarchal, uh, corrupt traditions of the Ottoman Empire, mm. and which is, if you like, the imagery that Europe has of, of, of modern Greece, a country that has always been subordinate to the big powers and unable, in fact, to be sovereign and, and rule itself throughout the 19th and the 20th century when mm. it became a, a sovereign state. So I think that was a duality, however, that again doesn't try to see Greece as it, as it really is in all its complex contradictions, as mm. a country that has huge potential and yet is plagued by precisely its own history and its, um, its, its own um, systemic failures, but also plagued because of... of, of, of Western interventions and yeah. Western mistakes. Yeah, a Cold War puppet. For instance, for, for instance, yes. Um, and so I think we now, especially in this moment of crisis, mm. I think we should all really have a good look into mm. Greece as a country that, as I said, is neither the, glo the glorious foremother mm. nor 
uh, the contemporary failure. Yeah. But it is a much more um, complex product of its own historical circumstances, of mm. which Europe and, and the rest of the West is a big part of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, sorry to have dragged you into you know, Greece today. There was no way we could have no, avoided it, really, no, no, because no. it's interesting the way in which this country is so massively this. in the no. headlines. I mean, I can remember as a teenager the invasion of Cyprus, and that, so soon after the restoration of democracy to Greece, was part of a, a headlining moment in the 70s. And then, really, it becomes a place where there's football and there are ships and there's a cultural heritage yes. for lots of Western slash Global North readers for a very long time. And now, of course, it is the hope of the left around the world. Um, and it is also the scourge of neoliberalism around the world, at the same time as it is nesting Nazism. Mm. So, Precisely. As I said, it's a very complex site mm. where various forces are, are, are struggling at the moment. But I think to kind of um, name and group these forces in terms of neoliberalism and mm. the left might be a bit oversimplistic, mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. Things that I think are much more complex. Mm -hmm. And I think part of looking back at Greece and taking a hard look, in fact, and trying to dissect what has created modern Greece as it is in, in all its contradictions and, and what that are the responsibilities of different parties in that constitution, in that creation, is to get rid of those um, Get rid of those ready-made categorizations. Exactly. Yes. Yes. I mean, I would question what is neoliberal, what is left. I think part of mm. what has happened mm. with the Greek crisis today is to place precisely those terms under scrutiny, at least for mm. those of us who really want to have a clear, critical understanding. Of, of, of the present in order to be able to imagine a more hopeful future. Mm, mm. Um, so, um, in that sense, and to start from um, the terrain where I feel most comfortable with, which is the left. I always belonged to the big left before I came to the, to the, to the United Kingdom and then, and then to Denmark and wandered around Europe for, for a number of years. Um, the question with that left is that we don't know anymore what it consists of. Um, the left has been fragmented many times. It, it has been fertilized by all sorts of different ideas. Uh, what we see today, particularly in terms of um, the um, huge catalytic victory of Syriza, um, many of the members of who are my old comrades and, and good friends, is that, of course, they didn't come into power because suddenly the Greek population became a radical left wing, mm. precisely because it was able to, as a, as a discourse about, about governance, was able to articulate all sorts of different demands. All different, sorts of different demands. Popular different demands, demands. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a discourse that I would call retain elements of the left, in the sense mm -hmm. that it embraced those who defined themselves as treated unjustly, as, as being poor, as, as needing protection, 
So it enacted what I think the left is always good at, which is um, playing out on what Hannah Arendt calls the politics of pity. Mm. If you have a demand, mm. I'm going to take it over and I'm going to try and see how I can, I can address it and satisfy it on the one hand. And on the other hand, it um, brought together a number of people who, um, a number of groups who were very much attached across time uh, to the most corrupt um, and the darkest um, systemic interests in Greece, who now saw a new, a new opportunity to be in power and try to fuel, um, uh, if you like, um, uh, that party uh, with a new force in order to be able to achieve their own, um, uh, their own um, purposes through that. And is, is this through the, uh, the umbrella use of nationalism that seems to be quite important? I, th I think that in order for this very disparate configuration of actors to come together and be united under a, an umbrella, a political umbrella, um, then some form of hybrid, of mixed discourse had to be created. And of course, part of that glue discourse is the discourse of nationalism, yeah. as well as the discourse of populism. That people are always right, which yeah. is again what I think, uh, what I think uh, Hannah Arendt was criticizing about the politics of partly about the politics of pity. So sorry for the further interruption, folks. Um, so, what are these dark forces that are connected to Syriza? Well, they are corrupt forces that have always been um, attached to any form of power, any form of systemic mm. establishment was there in Greece beforehand. They mm. were there in the years, in the many years, and more than 20 years that the so-called socialist party, PASOK, uh, mm. uh, ruled, and, and, and who are floating, if you like, um, uh, voters and floating um, uh, political agents uh, who would simply attach themselves to those forces that they see um, as, as emerging, as, as, as somehow coming up to, to, uh, to claim power. And, and they try to um, belong and they try to, 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 to make a claim to, the, to, to, to that power. Uh, in order to advance their own um, their own individual agendas, so um, I would say that we're not talking about pure left that is against mm. neoliberalism. We are talking about the configuration of different uh, agents and different ideological forces, of which the left is is just one. Yes. Um, and particularly when a left wing party like Syriza comes into power, and where the left itself needs to be seen in all its complexity and all its ideological mutations, right? Because within the left, as we see, especially today, um, uh, Syriza is already split into, into two main camps, the one that is now pro-European and the other one that is not in favor of Europe under any circumstances, precisely because of the neoliberal agenda. So who knows what's going to happen there? Are we going to see a split? Yeah. So the left itself is not a united thing. It's a, it's a very, it's a very tenuous, a very contradictory construction in itself. Now, having said that about the left and having deconstructed that in a kind of crude manner that I did, let me, on the other hand, emphasize that, of course, 
neoliberal forces in Europe need to be criticized. Mm. Of course, uh, what we need is a front against uh, those forces uh, that um, advocate uh, the ruling of a market logic over democracy, over any kind of political process that would involve the people um, and, and, and their decisions um, in, in the future of, of Europe. So there is no doubt about that. But I would say that Europe in itself is not necessarily neoliberal. I mean, Europe itself consists of many, especially its institutions, consists of many different parties. Yeah. And, and they create and operate on the basis of their own coalitions. We don't see one united front that is Europe and one united front that is Greece, and which is left-wing on the one yeah. and neoliberal on the other. I think that you know, the picture is much more complex. And if we could understand that complexity a bit um, in more detail, I think we would be able to read the situation in a better way. Um, yeah, I think I'll leave to that. That's wonderful. Thank you. I feel as I've learned so much already. We've got about five minutes left. I want to make sure we don't miss out on... Well, here's the irony of a spectatorship of suffering where Greece is the object of yes, suffering yes. and the rest of the world in the global north is spectating. I wonder if you could tell us though about this very noteworthy book that you wrote that came out almost ten years ago, I'm thinking. The Spectatorship of Suffering? Yes. Yes, yes. Could you share with us a, some of the, that book? and how you view it today? Um, well, that book, as I, as I said earlier, was really my first attempt to grasp the idea of the body need mm. as, as a problem of communication. Mm -hmm. that, that, that was the key thing. How, how can we develop a grammar, if you like, of reading that? And having a first, having a grounding in, 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 in the um, disciplines of discourse analysis and, and, and social semiotics, that was, um, of course, the, the, the perspective that I, I, I foregrounded in this book, um, the development, as I said, of a grammar of suffering. And I think the main contribution of that was, on the one hand, of that particular um, work, was, on the one hand, to indeed um, put forward um, uh, a framework, a tool, if you like, that allows us to um, critically interrogate spectacles of suffering in terms of what I call an analytics of mediation, where I take into account three dimensions of, of analysis. Uh, Space-time is suffering close or far away. Um, um, agency, who acts and to what effect, and whose interest in the scene of suffering, and outside the scene, who is called to act. So space-time and agency for me are key, if you like, semiotic cornerstones for understanding mm. the um, cultural and, and political and particularly ethical implications of spectacles of suffering. And then, of course, as a semiotic whole, the multimodality of the image. What are the semiotic modes that come in it, and how do they participate in creating meaning about suffering? So that was the first contribution, I think, the kind of analytical, methodological, and the other one was an intervention in media studies, first of all, to take semiotics more, interest, more, more seriously, second, to take us, you know, with a, the shift into media audiences, um, uh, somehow texts was rele were relegated to uh, the domain of the other, 
suddenly somebody who did tax didn't pay attention to agency. It was all about the active audience. And in my view, texts are active. So that was part of what I wanted to say by introducing that vocabulary. Texts are active and texts do um, produce subjectivities and, 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 and proposals for, uh, for action um, before we take them up. So they participate in that kind of intertextual flow of meanings that uh, we are surrounded by anyway, whether we are reading a, a screen or talking to another person. Mm. We're always going to some form of textuality. So that was the key thing of the methodological contribution. And then on a theoretical level, I wanted to, um, to complicate a bit um, the role of media communications in theories of cosmopolitanism. I felt that social theory, social and cultural theory and cosmopolitanism wasn't taking uh, media seriously and it wasn't taking the textuality of the media seriously either. And as a result, it ended up simply um, producing a, a, a very well-known dichotomy or polarity in the field between utopian and dystopian narratives. So either the media automatically connect us with distant others, mm. and that mm -hmm. was a kind of optimistic, positive, uh, utopian narrative. Because we live in a thoroughly mediated world, we are in touch with others, we feel for them, we act on them. So that, um, uh, if you like, naturalness of the bond was something I wanted to problematize. And on the other hand, we have the completely dystopian narratives whereby um, the media will never be able to connect. They are completely dystopian um, institutions. Um, the image by its own nature um, disconnects, numbs, anesthetizes. And my point is no, let's pay attention to what the image actually says, how it does the work of saying and of showing, and perhaps we will see that there are more possibilities for agency there. So that was the second contribution of, of that book. And then I took a lot of those ideas from my more recent work on, on the Iron Spectator in order to say, you know, how is it, to ask the question, how is it that humanitarianism mm. as, as a field of practice in itself copes with suffering? How does it represent it? And what um, forms of subjectivity and action does that enable for us? So I would say that my more recent book is a continuation of the spectatorship of suffering, even though it also marks a break, of course, in terms of the empirical material and the theoretical grounding of it. Just to finish off, perhaps you could tell us what the word... Could we get the check, please, by the way? Ironic implies here. Oh, the word ironic. You know, one of my key um, influences in this book as somebody to think with and think completely against and criticize fiercely was um, Richard Rorty and particularly his book Ironic Contingency, Contingency Solidarity. Now there, um, Rorty um, connects irony as we all know to postmodernism and to the idea that in a world where no meaning is stable, um, we live with that awareness and we do good simply because we are nice people, simply because we are trained through sentimental stories to um, not to be cruel to others. And my answer to that is, well, that's fine, 
We can be ironic, we can be aware of the contingency of meaning, uh, we can do good to others, and, and we should indeed, as Ruby says. But wait a minute, what about the question of values? Are there any values that inform our action? Is it all about contingency? Is it all about um, giving up the idea of any vision that the, the world might be a better place? And so what I wanted to do is criticize Rorty, use his concept of irony as something that indeed um, uh, characterizes contemporary uh, solidarity, but at the same time say that we need to go beyond irony, to become post-ironic in a sense, uh, and, and, and bring values back into the ways in which we both represent, understand, and act on distant suffering. Values like social justice which is completely out of the picture today when we talk about vulnerable others. This is a wonderful, wonderful three quarters of an hour for listeners to enjoy or at least learn from if not enjoy, as it is for me. So, Lily, thank you very much for your time. I thank you for giving me this opportunity. It's been wonderful for me. I hope you'll come back into the pod soon with your next exciting discoveries. I hope so.